Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ordinary people are seeing extraordinary things in our skies. But how has it changed those involved? From author Ryan Sprague, Somewhere in the Skies, A Human Approach to an Alien Phenomenon is a personal journey that also weaves together a story of stories, furiously pumping new blood into the heart of these mysteries, one experience at a time. Now available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. For more information, visit somewhereintheskies.com. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Please welcome uh, from the Center of UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Dr. Hynek. When you first get a uh, when you first get a report of a sighting, is your job to assemble evidence that will prove it to be so, or to assemble evidence to prove that it did not happen? You know, there are two ways to go on any investigation. The first thing we do is to try to disprove it. Mm -hmm. Because what is the point of, of perpetuating a myth or something that isn't so? And it turns out that some 90% of the raw reports, see, we have a, a nationwide police network, uh, an 800 number that the police use, and uh, we get reports every night from police departments or different parts of the country. Most of them are planets, twinkling stars. Explainable the, or identifiable explainable, things. The IFOs, we call them, identifiable flying objects. But that remaining 10%, those are the ones we go after. Now, a UFO, the U in UFO, of course, simply means unidentified. It does not necessarily mean visitors from outer space. But it must be unidentified, not just to the person who is puzzled by it, but it must remain unidentified after considerable study. Then and only then is it a UFO. In June of 1947, Private pilot Kenneth Arnold looked out his cockpit window and saw a group of nine silverly crescents weaving between the peaks of the Cascade Mountains at an estimated speed of 1,200 miles an hour. The media, the military, and the scientific community, led by J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer hired by the Air Force, debunked this and many other UFOs. But after years of denial, Hynek made a shocking pronouncement. UFOs are real. Today... I talked to author Mark O'Connell about his new book, The Close Encounters Man, how one man made the world believe in UFOs. Mark O'Connell broke into the television business writing several episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mark has had feature film projects optioned and or developed with Disney, DreamWorks Animation, Barcelona Films, Endless Entertainment Group, and Al Ruddy Productions. He was also a former MUFON field investigator. With unprecedented access to J. Allen Hynek's personal and professional files, Mark smashes conventional wisdom to reveal the intriguing man and scientist beneath the legend. Tracing Hynek's career, Mark examines Hynek's often ignored work as a professional astronomer to create a complete portrait 
of a groundbreaking enthusiast who became an American cult icon and transformed the way we see our world and our universe. So, without further ado, here's our conversation with Mark O'Connell. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Today is book release day, so I'm so honored and excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Ryan. I'm thrilled to be here. I really appreciate the invitation to come in and talk to your listeners. Of course. Well, I guess let's start at the beginning. We, we don't often see biographies written within the UFO subject, if ever. So what made you want to write a book about J. Allen Hynek? Well, I didn't set out <laughs> wanting to write a book about J. Allen Hynek. The genesis of this was, was kind of weird and improbable. About six years ago, 2011, I had the idea to start writing a UFO blog, but not just about UFOs. It was going to be specifically about my experiences becoming a certified UFO field investigator for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, and then and then blogging about my adventures in the field as I investigated UFO uh, reports. So that's how it all started out. About a year into that, and I was I was really loving writing this blog, having a lot of fun. I, you know, I would only get maybe twelve or fifteen page views a day, but you know that was enough to keep me going. Yeah. And then about about a year into it, I um you know I was constantly scouring the internet for interesting UFO stories I could I could mention in the blog, and I came across a website for the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies and discovered that it still was in existence, which shocked me because their website looked like it had been put together in, you know, 1987, <laughs> literally. And, but they were still a going concern, and there was somebody in charge, a, a gentleman named Mark Rodger. And I thought, wow, this... I, I knew a little bit about Dr. Hynek. I knew about his involvement in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, <clears throat> I knew a little bit about the swamp gas story from the 1960s, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. I just knew he was an important guy in the study of UFOs. So I contacted Mark Rodiger, who's now the scientific director of the Heineck Center for UFO Studies, and said, hey, I'm writing this little blog. I'd I, live a few I was living in Chicago at the time. I said, I'd love to stop by and just see what you're doing and look through your archives. So he invited me to stop by for a visit. And um, I discovered that what was left of Dr. Heineck's work was one half of, of Mark Rodiger's basement in his, his home in Chicago. Wow. A bunch of broken down old file cabinets, ancient, ancient manila folders just stuffed with documents, letters and reports and, and all sorts of things, and shelf after shelf after shelf of UFO books that um, the center had collected over the years. And I was kind of shocked at the condition of the archives, but I was also just amazed at the material that was hidden away inside all of those file drawers. So I, I, just, I just was eating it up, and one visit turned into two visits, and then three visits, and then at some point or another, um, Mark, Mark said, Hey, uh, we here at Kufos have, we've always wanted to recruit a writer to write the definitive account of Dr. Hynek's career, and I wonder if you'd be interested. And I said, heck yeah, I would love that. That's like a dream, a dream job for me. So that's how it all started. So so first off, I had access to Dr. Hynek's uh, archives and, and professional files in Mark's basement. Quickly found out that there was another Kufos person, Mary Kastner, 
who lived about 10 miles away in Skokie. Mary had the other half of the files in her basement. She had all the case files, then found out that because Dr. Heineck had spent so much of his professional career as an astronomer teaching at Northwestern University in Evanston, just a few miles from Skokie, I started going to their library and discovered that they had they had just immense an immense collection of Dr. Heineck's professional papers from his time at Northwestern. So that those things all just sort of fell together, came together at the same time, and and that's how the biography was born. And it wasn't it was never intended to be a full biography because I don't spend a whole lot of time on his home life and his family life. That would be a whole nother book. So the focus of the book is on his his dual careers. And I think that's, to me, that's what made the story so interesting. The fact that he was not just this world-renowned UFO researcher, but he was also a pretty accomplished astronomer with a whole lot of really amazing, really amazing scientific breakthroughs to his name that very few people seem to know about. So, so you know, when I learned that I was going to be writing about these two different stories, these two different careers, that kind of gave me the shape of the biography or the book and 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 off I went. Right, yeah, and like you mentioned, not many people know about his his accomplishments and success within the, you know, the astronomy field. So I think that's what you did best. That and bringing forth kind of the UFO history into this. You interweave all of these famous UFO cases into Heineck's life and essentially career and you bring up a case that really sort of kicked off the air force's involvement in ufo investigation and that was the mantel case could you for our listeners who may not be familiar with this case mark could you tell us a little bit about this case and how the air force got involved sure this happened very very uh, early in the stages of the modern ufo story which of course celebrates its 70th anniversary this month 70th anniversary of the Kenneth Arnold sighting in, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but the Mantell crash took place in, uh, in early 1948. Um, Mantell was a national Air National Guard pilot, and he and three other pilots were ferrying um, uh, four P-51 Mustangs from a base down south back up to their home base in Kentucky. Uh, it was meant to be a low-level flight, so only one of the four planes was equipped with oxygen. That's an important point. The day that these planes were all flying north uh, uh, to Kentucky, all sorts of people in northern Kentucky and southern Ohio started seeing this strange thing in the sky, and people were calling their local police departments. The local police departments were in turn calling the local Air Force bases, and and everyone was seeing um, this strange object floating through the sky that looked like, it looked to some people like a gigantic ice cream cone. It looked other people like a gigantic umbrella um, and it was just sort of hanging out there in the sky for everyone to see and the uh, the control tower operators at at uh, Standiford which is the it's the air base at Fort Knox in Kentucky mm-hmm. um, they were tracking this object visually uh, they they learned that Mantell and his crew were flying through the area and they radioed Captain Mantell and said hey we've got this We've got this strange thing in the sky. You're going to be flying pretty close to it. Would you and your guys mind just taking a little detour to try to get a closer look at this? Well, they did, and one of the planes was short on fuel, so it just continued on to its home base. The other three turned and started chasing this object. 
two of the planes just sort of gave up and dropped out, but Mantell kept going. He made visual contact with this thing. He's, his last radio contacts were just to tell the control tower operators that it, it appeared to be metallic and it, it, and it was immense in size. And then they lost contact with Mantell. Well, three minutes later, Mantell's plane comes screaming out of the sky over a farm in northern Kentucky and just and just crashes into the to the into the ground and is disintegrated. The investigators find that Mantell's cockpit had never been opened, so the theory is that he either passed out or was asphyxiated because he flew too high. He flew higher than he should have without oxygen. Mm -hmm. um, so the upshot of all of this is that UFOs UFOs were still a fairly new phenomenon at this point. But all of a sudden, they were a deadly phenomenon. This was the first time that a military pilot, a highly trained, fearless military pilot, had actually chased a UFO and died because of it. So it put a real chill into the air, and it, and it made it immensely important that Project Sign, the Air Force's newly minted UFO investigation project, they needed answers fast because people were very, very nervous about the fact that, that a military pilot had just died uh, pursuing what what seemed to be and possibly some sort of alien craft in the sky. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of that, we also have another case that involved pilots, and that was the Clarence Chillis and John Whitted case. And this really seemed to be an important moment in terms of the Air Force's attempts to debunk these UFOs before they really got out of hand. Uh, would you mind touching on this case briefly for us before we get into Hynek's involvement? Yeah, and of course I'd never do it briefly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, please, elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> and, this, and this is one of my favorite cases, so I'm really glad you're asking about it. Cool. Um, it, it followed hot on the heels of the Kenneth Arnold sighting and then the Thomas Mantell crash. Um, an Eastern Airline flight traveling across the southern United States, heading heading east towards Atlanta, flying over, um, I think they were around uh, Jackson, Mississippi or so, and the two pilots notice a glowing red light that seems to be heading towards them, and at first they think it's an experimental aircraft jet, because remember, jet plane, this is 1949, jet aircraft were not very common at this point. All right. So they assumed it was an experimental jet aircraft from the military. Well, then it gets closer, and it's actually a tubular object, a, a rocket with no wings, no apparent wings, uh, two rows of glowing lights along the fuselage, a blue glow along its, along its lower edge, and a giant 50-foot red and orange flame shooting out of its tail. <laughs> and as it approaches the aircraft, it seems to make a conscious maneuver to its left to avoid a collision with, with the airliner. And it zooms past the plane and then and then veers up into the clouds. And just, now, for years and years, that was all I ever knew about the case. But when I started researching it for my book, I came across this very interesting story that also fits into this. And that is that a ground crew uh, guy from an Air Force base in Macon, Georgia, saw the exact same thing from the ground and exactly an hour before the pilots of that Eastern Airlines flight saw this thing. So all of a sudden you've got this incredibly complicated situation because the guy, at, the guy on the ground in Georgia sees this wingless rocket with a giant flame shooting out of its end flying away to the northwest. An hour later it's seen by these airline pilots over Mississippi 
but that means that the flying object, if it was only one object, crossed from the um, eastern time zone into the central time zone, and so all of a sudden the timing of these events becomes very hard to trace because Heineck and the Air Force investigators weren't really, were never really sure if everyone was recording the time in their own time zone or if they were all reporting it in central time zone and if they were figuring in daylight savings time, which was still a fairly new thing at the time. So all of a sudden you've got this situation where you have not just the witnesses on the airplane, but a witness on the ground who saw this apparently the same thing. And depending on how you look at the timing, the sightings either took place an hour apart or two hours apart or instantaneously. Mm. And Heine could never really figure out which of those it was. It completely vexed him throughout this research. Another, another monkey wrench was that there was one passenger in the airliner who, he may not have been the only one to see it, but he was the only one who spoke up about it, who saw this thing zoom past the plane in the middle of the night and then fly up into the clouds. He turned out to be a personal friend of Dr. Heineck's. So Heineck had some very, very reliable witnesses in this case. He had the two Eastern Airline pilots who were decorated military pilots, very high credibility. Mm-hmm. He had his friend who was riding and then he had um, a, another very credible uh, Air Force professional in the gr- in the uh, the sighting from the ground. So put it all together, you've got you've got you know concurrent sightings of the same object. Apparently, you've got several witnesses that are very very qualified observers and very credible, uh, and you've got a real mystery on your hands. This was a really really tough case for for uh, Project Science to take on. And like we mentioned earlier, you know, the whole idea of Project Sign essentially was to to debunk these cases, to give a conventional reasoning for them. And this is why they brought in Heineck. When he left Project Sign, Mark, and he went back to teaching, it was clear that he wasn't quite done with the Air Force. Um, and he was brought back again to do a discrete study. Um, I had no idea about this. This was really interesting when I read this in your book. And this involved interviewing fellow astronomers. Could you tell us a bit about this project? Well, by this time, Project Sign had evolved into Project Grudge, which in turn evolved into Project Blue Book, which is probably the one most people are familiar with. And so Project Blue Book contracted with uh, Battelle Memorial Institute, a a technology consulting firm in Ohio, to help continue with their study of UFO sightings. Battelle ended up hiring Heineck, to go out and do a do a sort of a a sleuthing do some sleuthing among his prof- his fellow professional astronomers they just sent him out to do sort of a informal anonymous poll of his colleagues and try to find out how many of them a had ever seen a ufo and and b were willing to talk about it so there's two levels here mm-hmm. it's not just who has seen one it's who has seen one and is willing to go out on a limb and speak about it publicly and what he found out after interviewing about 45 or 50 astronomers over the course of a few months, what he found was that about 11% of the astronomers had seen something that they would they would classify as a UFO, something that uh, was very real to them, but they could not explain in any sort of normal physical or astronomical terms. So that's about 11% is a pretty high percentage. Heineck was very surprised to find that that many scientists um, had seen something and were willing to admit it to him. And, you know, it's in, in a way it makes sense because, of course, astronomers are always looking up at the sky 
And when they are looking up at the sky, they know instantly when something does not belong in the sky. So, you know, that sort of makes them the world's most perfect UFO witnesses. So it was kind of a big deal for Heineck to discover that so many of them uh, had seen UFOs. Another element of that, though, was that he also found that, I, I think the percentage was around a third, around a third of the astronomers he polled, even if they w wouldn't admit to having seen UFOs or never had seen UFOs, were willing to say that they would be willing to study the problem if the right opportunity presented itself. So that was another big thing, too. Just the fact that there were other scientists whose curiosity had been, had been piqued just enough that they would say, sure, I, w I would take a look at this. You mentioned Project Grudge, Mark, and this eventually began to dwindle into sort of a, a one-man show when Edward Ruppelt picked up the pieces. Uh, and again, Grudge seemed to be, you know, the real stamp down of we are going to find conventional reason for every single one of these cases that are being reported. But Ruppelt really caught my attention in terms of your book. He, he seemed to sort of rise from the ashes to revive this entire government-funded project on studying UFOs involving Hynek. So could you give us a little background on who Ruppelt was and how he, he ultimately began what we all know, the most famous government-funded project, and that was Project Blue Book? Yeah, it, he's kind of a hero to me, actually, after after writing this book. And it was so many moments in the story of UFOs sort of rely on this sort of weird mystical chance that sort of brings different people or different elements together at just the right time to create some sort of new understanding. And I think that's what happened with, with Ruppelt and Heineck. Heineck had already been involved with the Air Force with Project Sign, which towards the end was leaning very heavily towards the extraterrestrial hypothesis right. before it was quickly disbanded, <laughs> before they went too far down that road. <laughs> with Project Grudge, and Grudge's mandate was basically to make the UFOs go away for good. So Ruppelt comes in uh, at the tail end of Project Grudge and takes a new approach. He says, you know what, we're not going to lean in any direction. We are going to be as unbiased as we possibly can. We're going to be as scientific as we possibly can. And if anybody on my staff starts talking about how they believe in aliens, they're going to get transferred. And if anybody on my staff alternately starts saying that they think UFOs are mass hallucinations, they are also going to get transferred. I don't. He did not want any any of that sort of thinking on his team, which you know for its time was kind of revolutionary. So. And it was about that time that he started working with Heineck because Heineck had been brought back in at the in the early days of Blue Book by Ruppelt, by the way, who was very impressed with Heineck. So the two of them developed, mm -hmm. they worked closely for several years, and they, de they developed a sort of, a, I would say, a grudging mutual respect. They never completely trusted each other because there was always a recognition that they, they were serving different masters. Ruppelt was serving the Air Force and the Pentagon. Heineck was serving science and public opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they never quite completely bonded, but there was enough mutual respect there that they actually were able to do quite a bit of good work and do some really, really interesting investigations. Uh, and it was Ruppelt in the end who, um, this, is, this is a major point I want to bring up, in the early days, all Heineck ever did was he would sit at a desk and he would look at these printouts of UFO reports and he would read the narratives and he would say, oh, well, that was obviously Venus, that was obviously 
a comet, that was obviously a meteor, and that was all he did. Under Ruppelt's leadership, Heineck was actually sent out in the field to do his own first field investigation. This was a, a, a mass sighting in South Dakota and North Dakota, um, and, and, and Heineck, did, uh, Heineck did a really good job investigating a very puzzling case. And it only happened because Ruppelt said, Ruppelt was actually on his way out at that time. He was retiring from the military. And this was the last case that he investigated. But in, his, in the conclusion of his investigation, he said, I think Dr. Heineck should be sent out to South Dakota and North Dakota. I think he should look into this as well. So that moment started this whole new chapter in Heineck's career where he was not just sitting behind a desk, but going out in the field, investigating these UFO incidents on the scene, meeting face-to-face -face with the witnesses, which is a huge, huge deal. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a gigantic step in his, in his transformation as a UFO researcher. Absolutely. And, you know, and then we see Heineck's sort of feelings on the entire topic start to sway, start to ebb and flow uh, when speaking face-to-face -face with these people. I mean, it's one thing to see it on paper, but then to go and actually boots on the ground do it, Mark, um, I'm sure you know as a as a MUFON investigator, like that, that, that's when you really start to think there's something to all this. And the same could be said for Heineck. And I mean, one of those cases where he was out there in the field actually investigating was the Socorro, New Mexico case. Now, this is a pivotal case for UFO buffs out there. But for those who may not know about it, could you tell us a little about this case and how Heineck considered it the Rosetta Stone, as it were? <laughs> sure. Another one of my favorite cases. It involves a traffic cop named Lonnie Zamora in um, the town of Socorro, New Mexico, which just happens to be pretty much a stone's throw away from Holloman Air Force Base and the White Sands Missile Grounds. Okay, two places places where a lot of experimental military hardware is developed and tested. So, with that as a background, uh, Lonnie Zamora was uh, just finishing up his shift when he spotted a speeder uh, going through town. So he takes off after the speeder, he's just about to catch up with the car, and he hears a loud boom uh, coming off from the side of the highway, and he sees a cloud of, a cloud of smoke um, coming from, from where the boom is, and he, he knows that there is a dynamite shack over in these hills in this part of town, and he's afraid that the dynamite shack has just blown itself up. So he veers off the highway, drives up, drives off on a gravel road into this rocky, rocky, hilly area, and he spots what he first thinks is an overturned car. He thinks uh, some people uh, drove their car off the ridge of, of uh, uh, this, this hill and rolled it down into this arroyo down beneath, and he sees two people outside this vehicle, and they're both kind of short because he can compare them to the nearby shrubbery. They appear to be either large children or small adult men and they're wearing white coveralls well he loses sight of them for a minute while he drives his car closer and then he sees him again and at this point the two the two people in the white coveralls one of them turns and notices Zamora's approaching patrol car and sort of jumps as if it's startled and then Zamora parks and he gets out of his car and he can't see these guys anymore the, the men in the white coveralls he scrambles down the hill towards this object, and he realizes that it is not an overturned car. It's actually a gigantic egg-shaped thing that appears to be made of metal, white aluminum possibly, and it's standing on landing struts, and it has a strange symbol painted on the side. 
Well, as he's approaching this thing, it starts to roar and flames shoot out of the bottom. Well, Zamora goes running back up to his squad car to hide as this thing takes off and zooms across the, the sky um, and disappears against the horizon. And Zamora gets on the radio and calls in for help. And when the next, uh, when a state policeman, Sam Chavez, shows up, he says Zamora is just white as a sheet. Looks like he's just seen the devil. He seems to be in shock. He's just been seeing something that has absolutely unnerved him. Um, and it also turns out that a family of tourists driving through town had seen the same thing. Um, they pulled into a gas station in Socorro and they said, hey, what have you got flying around here? And the gas station guy says, well, what do you mean? You know, we're close to a military basis, so there are always a lot of helicopters around. And the guy says, no, this wasn't a helicopter. This was some weird thing that buzzed our station wagon just a minute ago as we were driving into town. And he says, and just after we saw it, we saw one of your local police cars go driving off the highway onto this gravel road. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So they saw Zamora actually responding to the, the blast that he had heard. So, um... So you've got this really interesting case where you've got this no-nonsense policeman who, according to Heineck, was, was a very solid citizen, not a really imaginative person, not the kind of person you would expect to fabricate a crazy story about a UFO. And there are these independent witnesses. There are these tourists who, who told the gas station attendant that they had seen the very same thing at the very same time in the very same place. Unfortunately, they paid cash for their gas when they filled up their car. So, <laughs> so, so, I mean, there have been searches for these people, and I, 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 I stayed away from that part of the story because it wasn't really relevant to, to my narrative. But what you've got is a really puzzling account, and it attracted a lot of attention. And, and uh, Project Blue Book sent Heineck to Socorro very quickly. He said he needed to sort of squash it down before it became a legend. Um, and he met with Zamora and was very impressed with, again, how, how very matter-of-fact 
uh, Zamora was. He did not embellish his story. His story remained exactly the same with every telling. He was he was clearly confused and disturbed by what he had seen, but he was also really upset because he wasn't going to hand out his quota of speeding tickets because that was more important to him. Which I think took us an interesting clue to this guy's personality. It's like why would he be making this thing up? if he really just wants to be out there handing out speeding tickets. This kind of <laughs> approach to that I thought was kind of funny. So this case has been studied and analyzed. A lot of people suggested that this object that Zamora saw was maybe a prototype of NASA's lunar excursion module, which was being tested for the moon flights, the Apollo moon flights later on in the 1960s. So that was a possibility that a lot of people pointed out to. It's never been proven. The Air Force has always denied that that was the case. But no, nobody's ever come up with an explanation for the case. It remains a really intriguing unknown, and like Heineck said, it's kind of the Rosetta Stone because it had all the perfect elements, all the elements of a perfect UFO situation. Right. And I mean, you know, human occupants or non-human, uh, it also sort of ushered in this whole new classification system that Heineck himself created. And th- this bleeds sort of into the title of your book and um, his involvement with another big project. But uh, could you tell us a little, Mark, about this classification system that Heineck ultimately came up with while working on Blue Book? Sure. He, um, his classification system actually went through several different permutations over time because he was constantly trying to think through the UFO problem and think of the best approach. And of course, he's a scientist. Scientists like to categorize things. So it made sense to him that he should try to categorize UFO sightings. And the first system he came up with, and he actually described it first in an article that appeared in Playboy magazine, of all things. Right. Um, Playboy, the readers of Playboy loved reading about flying saucers. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. But uh, so Heineck does this story for Playboy magazine in the late 60s, and he starts talking about how he sees that you could categorize UFO sightings according to um, the strangeness of the situation. In other words, is it is it an event that can be explained by physical laws? And the number two factor is the credibility of the witness. Um, is the witness someone who is a you know solid citizen, good observer? Um, someone who can be counted on to give an honest telling of their experience, and he thought that he thought that if you could group together, if you could if you could group together sightings that had a high strangeness factor and a high credibility factor for the witness, that those were the cases that you should focus on. That, that so that became his first approach. Over time, he sort of developed that. He expanded that into three very simple categories of UFOs, and those were, number one, the daylight disks, which I think the the, the term is fairly obvious, self-explanatory. The second category was meandering uh, nocturnal lights, and if you've been studying UFOs for a while, you know that the vast majority of sightings are meandering nocturnal lights. His third category was visual and radar sightings, and those were sightings where... um, you know, obviously, a, a visual sighting of a UFO was backed up and confirmed by uh, a radar uh, reading, confirming that the, the presence of a solid object and, and its movement. Uh, and those were very, very intriguing cases to Heineck. So, th- so that was his first group of three categories. 
Later on, he expanded that and he added the close encounter categories. That's what people are most familiar with, obviously from from the movie and and from the, that that term's use in common parlance in, in our language today. Um, a close encounter of the first kind involved um, visual contact with an unusual object in the sky that was within 500 yards. He figured that was a close enough that was a close enough measure that you could make out a visual detail on the UFO. A close encounter of the second kind involved the UFO leaving behind physical traces. And that could be anything from scorch marks, which the UFO in Lonnie Zamora's case left behind, mm -hmm. uh, scorch, uh, burned brush, landing, landing gear imprints in the ground. That could also include ultraviolet burns to the witness's eyes. It could involve the witness's car engine shutting off and its lights shutting off in the presence of a UFO. So that was a close encounter of the second kind. Those, those cases most intrigued Heineck because he thought that they had the most scientific value and he thought that they had the highest chance of actually proving something about the UFO phenomenon. And then of course the close encounter of the third kind involves sighting and possible interaction with a being that emerges from the UFO or is seen in close proximity with the UFO. So th those are the three iconic categories that that, uh, that everyone knows so well today. Right. And I mean, it. we couldn't know it any better than when it came to us in the form of Steven Spielberg's film. And obviously, Heineck had to be involved with this somehow. So this is a really interesting part of the book. One of the, the, the more pop culture-esque aspects of Heineck's entire career. So could you tell us a little about how Heineck got involved with Spielberg's film, Mark? Sure. This is, my discovery of this story came about while I was rooting through those decrepit, <laughs> those decrepit uh, file cabinets in Mark Rodiger's basement mm -hmm. at, at the Center for UFO Studies. I found a manila folder labeled Spielberg. And I'm a screenwriter and, and a film buff and a huge admirer of Steven Spielberg, so of course I grabbed that envelope and flipped it open to see what was in it. It was a fairly thin envelope, as I recall, compared to some of the other envelopes in those files. Um, but there was one letter in particular that, that really jumped out at me, and it was this painfully awkward letter that J. Allen Hynek had written to Steven Spielberg to very politely point out that his new movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, had actually stolen its title, kind of, sort of, <laughs> from a book that Heineck had written in 1972 called The UFO Experience. So in this letter, Heineck very gently and politely points out to Steven Spielberg that, um, hey, the term Close Encounters of the Third Kind is actually my intellectual property, so... And then he mentions that he's going to be in Los Angeles soon, and he says, you know, maybe the two of us could get together and talk while I'm in town. So I'm staring at this letter that Heineck has written to Steven Spielberg, and my jaw is on the floor um, because I feel like this is a this is such a fascinating little moment in history that I'm holding in my hands, and it's real because I'm holding it in my hands. And that's those are the kind of amazing discoveries I've made over and over again in researching this book. But so I started digging into that story and discovered that. Um, when Heineck and Spielberg did actually meet, they were able to sort things out very amicably. Um, as I say in the book, both men got what they wanted. Um, 
Spielberg was able to use the title Close Encounters of the Third Kind in his movie. He hired Hynek to be his uh, technical advisor. Um, a lot of the incidents in the movie were inspired by stories that Hynek had told in that book, The UFO Experience. So Hynek's, Hynek's fingerprints are actually all over that movie. And in fact, at, towards the climax of the movie, at the Dark Side of the Moon UFO landing base uh, at the bottom of Devil's Tower, um, Heineck has a cameo appearance in the movie. He has a, a, he's in a shot that lasts about six seconds. The alien mothership has appeared. Everyone is just in awe. They're all bathed in this glowing light coming from the mothership. And they cut to a quick shot of this scientist. He's like the only person in the scene who isn't wearing a white over, white overalls. Mm -hmm. So he's just he's this very professorial looking guy with a goatee and glasses and a pipe. And he, while all these scientists are sort of hanging back and staying away from the mothership, Heineck is actually stepping towards it sort of fiddling with his pipe and sticking it in his mouth. And so he, he has this moment in the film where he alone is approaching the mothership, which to me was fairly significant. It was kind of an acknowledgement, I think, on Steven Spielberg's part that Heineck really was a leader, maybe the leader in this field, and that he had really shown the way. So I think it's a pretty neat moment in the movie, even though it's only six seconds. And in the book, of course, I tell the story of um, Heineck tells the story of how uh, they actually filmed a lot of scenes that day where the little um, humanoid aliens uh, sort of clustered around Heineck and started fiddling with his pipe and <laughs> tugging on his goatee. And it sounds very... He, Heineck says it was all very corny and he's really glad it didn't get used in the movie. But man, someday I would love... Oh my God, yeah. Give us the deleted scenes. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Well, I mean, so Mark, at that point, I mean, Heineck was now, you know, he was mainstream. He was in a Hollywood movie. Uh, he was doing interviews all over the place, late night talk shows. Um, he was everywhere. He was very visible and he was the UFO guy. You know, and we know Jacques Vallée as well had worked with Spielberg in the film, uh, talked with him, consulted with him. And while these two were sort of visible, there were a lot of scientists working behind the scenes, still studying UFOs. And this was something that has sort of been coined as the Invisible College. Could you, could you describe this a little bit for us and what, what you make of this entire aspect of scientific research of UFOs? Yeah, it's a fascinating story, and it's, it's kind of an interesting case in um, uh, a case of, of beware unintended consequences. Because the Invisible College came about at a time when institutional science was essentially um, killing ufology once and for all. And while they were doing that, the Invisible College sprung up and kept ufology alive um, in, in spite of science's best efforts. So it's, it's a very curious story. What happened was long series of events that started out with the 1966 Michigan swamp gas case eventually that case led to the Colorado Project, which refers to the U.S. Air Force hired the University of Colorado, gave them a $300,000 grant in uh, 1967 to do the final, ultimate, authoritative analysis of the UFO problem and decide, number one, um, do UFOs pose a threat to our country, and number two, 
do they represent any sort of do they actually represent any sort of interesting alien technology that we're not aware of? So those were the kinds of things the Colorado Project was looking at. Um, and what they did basically was, uh, after, after a couple of years of very public infighting and scandal and embarrassing news leaks, um, the Colorado Project finally came out with a final report that said, no, there's nothing to this. We all just need to forget about UFOs and move on. And by the way, Project Blue Book should be killed as quickly as possible. So that's exactly what happened. Under the cover of the Colorado Project's final report, the Air Force was able to legitimately shut down Project Blue Book um, because they said, well, now, now we know that there's no value to this anymore. So we're just going to kill it. So Heineck found himself... Uh, free, free of the Air Force's constraints for the first time in many, many, many years. Um, and when the University of Colorado was picked to, to run this study, what happened was there were a whole lot of other universities that turned down the chance to participate in this study, but they had, they had faculty, they had professors on their staffs, they had scientists, ast astronomers, physicists, psychologists, psychiatrists, biologists, who were secretly interested in the UFO problem, but when their universities didn't get the grant, they were all looking for a way to sort of um, uh, pursue these interests in a safe and anonymous manner. Well, Heineck gave them that opportunity because he said, look, you know what? Project Blue Book may be dead, but I'm still interested in this topic, and me and my buddies here in Chicago are going to keep moving ahead with our own studies and anybody who wants to join us is welcome. And so what happened was a whole lot of these scientists from universities and scientific uh, research um, uh, research centers, not just in the U.S. but around the world, started contacting Heine and saying, I want to be part of this. And they didn't have any formal structure. That's why they're the Invisible College. They, they would get together when two or three of them happen to be attending the same scientific conference somewhere in the world. Or if two or three of them happen to be in Chicago at the same time, they would all meet at Heineck's house and talk about, talk about their research and you know, put their heads together and, and try, to, try to make some progress in their research. So that's how the Invisible College came about. It was sort of a retreat for all these establishment scientists who were interested in the problem but weren't being given the opportunity to pursue their interests in the within the confines of you know traditional scientific establishment and academia <laughs> right and then i mean eventually heineck would then form qfos which was an organization that he started and had you know some sort of structure to it so could you could you tell us where qfos stands right now mark where it stands right now boy that's that's tricky because as i've already described you've got you've got mark rodiger and Mary Kastner and several really dedicated people who are doing whatever they can to keep Heineck's legacy alive and to keep his records and his archives um, safe and intact and preserved for you know future researchers. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't. It all. It always comes down to money. They they don't have money. Um, you know, there when when Kufos first began, when Heineck first formed this group, which was essentially, he just basically took the Invisible College and said, hey, we're coming out in the open now, and they hung up a shingle and said, okay, we're, we are your 
friendly neighborhood UFO research organization. <laughs> so, um, but at that time, the plans were, they were budgeted for about a two, $200,000 a year. This is in the early 1970s to run KUKOS. And for a couple of years, they were operating very nicely. They were bringing in a lot of money. They had celebrities involved like Jackie Gleason and Stan Freeberg. Then they had the movie Close Encounters, which brought a lot of attention to KUKOS and a lot of support. Um, but over time, uh, the financial constraints became very, very difficult to deal with, especially after Heineck passed away in 1986. Um, KUFOS just went through a period of constant downsizing to the point where, as I've mentioned, um, their files are essentially stored in people's basements and attics throughout Chicago, which to me is kind of a disgrace. I wish there was a way to come up with the money um, to get all these records in a safe place, in one place where you know, people like me and you um, can go and study them. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I think things like your book, like shining a light on this man's career, it will invigorate some people to be like, oh my God, we are sitting on a wealth of information from credible astronomers, scientists, philosophers, psychiatrists, everything you mentioned earlier, and know that there is something to this. So let's, it's it's 2017, people, let's digitize this stuff. <laughs> You know, in terms of the legacy of J. Allen Hynek, Mark, uh, you did such a good job, like I said, uh, weaving his story in with UFO history. It was complex. It was controversial. I'm sure it was messy to sort of create a narrative around this entire thing. But he has found his place in UFO history, Mr. Hynek has. What do you take from the life of Hynek after digging so deep into his life and career? Well, this just came up this morning. Somebody asked me a question on my blog, HighStrangenessUFO.com, about the future of ufology. And this person asked me, if you had unlimited money to pursue UFO research, and you, and because I had mentioned in my blog, and I've mentioned this several times, that I think maybe we need to sort of throw out the way ufology has been pursued so far and come up with a whole new approach. So this person asked me, okay... You had unlimited money to come up with a whole new approach. What would you do first? And I thought, wow, that's that's a really really fascinating question. Mm -hmm. And I realized that um, I would go back. My my thoughts immediately go back to something that Dr. Heineck said to his friend and colleague Jacques Vallée back when they they had flown out to Colorado to give testimony to the scientists on the Colorado project, um, and they flown into Denver and they were they were driving to their hotel and they started talking about their scientific philosophies and they actually started sharing some of their spiritual and mystical feelings which scientists don't always do especially not with fellow scientists mm -hmm. but during this conversation Jacques Vallée said well what caused you to get into science Alan you know there's this story around that when you were eight you were sick in bed, and your mom read you an astronomy textbook, and that's what that's what did it. And Heineck said, "Well, the, the real reason I got into science is that I wanted to explore the things that science couldn't explain. I wanted to study the fringes, the ragged edges of science, and try to figure out the things that we haven't that have defied explanation up till now. And I think that's a really good starting point." But I think that if you're going to start there, if you're going to start looking at the things science can't explain, it seems to me, as, as a non-scientist, 
it seems to me that if you're going to start there, then you shouldn't lock yourself into the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Because, as we all know, over decades and decades and decades, 70, 70 years now of UFO study and research, the scientific method has not exactly been our friend. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't really gotten us anywhere, you know? But, but the general consensus is, well, if you can't prove it using the scientific method, then it's not true. It doesn't exist. Well, I think we need to get beyond that kind of rigid thinking. And I think this is where Heineck would have wanted to go. I think he would have, I, I, I mentioned at some point in the book, I said, actually, I think this was in my original book proposal. One of my lines was that as more and more Americans start to wonder what's out there, Heineck starts to wonder what out there really means. Hmm. In, later in life, he was he his thinking had become very expansive. He was thinking in terms of alternate dimensions. He was thinking that there was very probably a psychic dimension to the UFO phenomenon, and not getting into talks about ESP or telekinesis, but just saying that the that someone who has undergone someone who has gone through a UFO event, a, a close encounter, an abduction. Um, that part of what they have experienced may have been in their minds. That doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that there's no way in hell we can study that, it, especially if we stick to the scientific method. So I was really glad that this person brought it up on my blog today because it kind of triggered these thoughts in me. And they're, they, as you can tell, they haven't fully gelled. I know I'm kind of talking in circles here. <laughs> but again, I, I just go back to Heineck's quote about I wanted to study the things that science couldn't explain. So, okay, we all want to study that. So why do we rely on science to give us the mode of studying that, the scientific method? I think we need to be more. Um, I think we need to be more open to abandoning the traditional scientific method when it doesn't when it doesn't fit the bill. And as we all know, there are a lot of instances when it when it just doesn't fit the bill. This person also asked me. Well, again, they, well, this isn't an addition. This this was the main question. What would you do if you had unlimited funds? And I thought, you know what? I would go back to what, to me, is, I think, the most intriguing unsolved UFO case of all time. It's the Tremontan, Utah movie film. Um, A Navy photographer, Dilbert Newhouse, was on vacation driving through Utah with his family. Beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. And Mrs. Newhouse looks out the car window and says, hey, what's that up in the sky? Well, there are 15 or 20 bright white lights sort of cavorting about in the blue sky. Well, Newhouse pulls the car over, goes to the trunk of the car. He just happens to have a 16-millimeter movie camera with him, (coughs) and he shoots about 40 seconds of film. Excuse me. He shoots about 40 seconds of film of these bright objects flying about in the sky, and he sends the film to his his higher-ups in the military. The film ends up going to two most technically advanced at the time photo research labs run by our government and the film is subject to frame by frame analysis and after thousands of man hours our country's best photo analysts these are people who work for the CIA and the military they cannot explain what these objects are they are absolutely certain that these objects are not birds they're not balloons they're not astronomical phenomenon. They are something solid and manufactured that are either emitting light or reflecting light. So 
to me, that case is kind of a jaw-dropper. And it seems to me, it, this just occurred to me again just this morning writing, writing this out on my blog, that if I had those unlimited resources, I would find the closest to original copy of that film in existence, and I would hire the best special effects people in the movie industry to analyze it. Not just analyze it frame by frame, but analyze it pixel by pixel. If you think about how much imaging technology has advanced just over the last 10 or 20 years or so, if we could apply the latest state-of-the-art photo analysis science to that film, I wonder what we would find out about it. Uh, I can only imagine, man. Yeah, a fascinating case. And where where do you got my money? Where do I send it? Because <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Let's start this now. Yeah. This is Project. We'll talk after this. We'll start a, uh, a Kickstarter or something for sure. <laughs> well, uh, Mark, what's next for you? What's I know you know the book is just coming out. This is an exciting time for you as a researcher and an author. Do you have any other upcoming projects coming out soon? Well, I have I have three or four ideas for book projects that I'm going to be kicking around over the next couple of months. It's too early to go into them publicly, but. Um, but I have I have some fun, intriguing ideas. They're not all, all some of them are UFO related, but not all of them are UFO related. So it's possible that my next book may go off in a completely different direction. <laughs> in the meantime, I will continue to blog at highstrangenessufo.com. That will not change, and um, you know, continue to continue to air commentary and opinion on happenings in UFO world whenever I can on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or my blog. So that's. That's uh, that's what I'll be up to next. Perfect. Sounds great, my man. Again, guys, the book is The Close Encounters, Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. Mark, I can't thank you enough for joining me. And again, congratulations on the book. I think this will be one of the seminal books when it comes to uh, UFO research and who we can truly learn from. And that is Mr. J. Allen Hynek and yourself included. So again, thank you for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies. Well, I really appreciate it, Ryan. It's been a blast talking with you. Let's do it again sometime. Sounds great. That is it for this week's episode. For any new listeners out there, thank you for giving the show a chance. Please share the show. And if you have a moment, rate and review the show on iTunes. I'd certainly appreciate it. Email me with topic and guest suggestions. Spreg at somewhereintheskies.com All past shows and exclusive content can be found on the website, somewhereintheskies.com Next week, we are joined by Erica Lukes, a UFO researcher out of Utah. We'll dig deep into some of her most intriguing cases. It's sure to be an interesting interview. I'll see you next Monday. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. This has been a Third Kind production. To learn more, visit thirdkindproductions.com.